All right. I want to kind of continue talking about repentance. I, I do believe that is the word of the Lord to the church in this day. Repent. I think all the craziness we're seeing on the planet is not God's judgment on the world, but it's God calling the church back to repentance. He's not dealing with the world right now. He's dealing with the church. Um, and uh, he's calling us to repentance. We're, <laughs> the nation is in the state it's in because the church is in the state yeah, it's in. And it's time for us to repent and get back to the beautiful, simple gospel, yes. loving Jesus with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, yes. picking up our cross daily, living for him. So I just feel so strongly in this season. It's a call to repentance. So I want to continue to talk about that. And I want to um, preach from um, a, a pretty familiar passage of Scripture. We, uh, we use this uh, one of these verses all the time when at the beginning of worship. It's almost become like a cliche for a worship leader to use this one. But I really want to camp out on this verse and, uh, and talk about repentance. This is Psalm 100. I'm going to read the whole psalm to you. Get ready. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I could stop right there. I, I, that verse 3, I think that is the message to the nation. The Lord is God. You're not. He made you. You didn't. We're his people. We belong to him. And we're the sheep of his pasture. I love that verse 3 is followed by verse 4. Verse 4 is really what I want to talk about today. So we're saying, Lord's God, he made us, we belong to him, we're his people, he takes care of us. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. I want to talk about entering the gates with thanksgiving. See, I think sometimes we talk about things like repent, and it's like, what does that actually mean? And I don't know if you've ever tried to repent. Like, tried? It's really hard to stop believing something and start believing something else when you believe it. And you're like, I know it's wrong, but I believe it, and I can't stop believing it. Maybe I'm the only one that can't control my mind like that. And I just, like, and repent. It's like, man, it'd be really nice to have some practical tool. How do I repent? What can I do? Is there something I can do to bring myself into a life of repentance? And repentance is just changing your mind, thinking God's way. I, was, I, was, I saw things this way, and now God has flipped everything upside down. Now I see it the right way. I was going this way. Now I'm going that way. It's just a change of mind. Um, and so um, I want to give you some practical tools, I hope, uh, to help with this whole idea of repentance. But I want to talk about gates. It says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. So in the Bible, gates are pretty significant and important. Lots of things happen at gates. In, in, uh, in the Old Testament, prophets actually delivered their message at the gate. The, court, the courts of justice would meet at the gate. Justice was executed 
at the gate. Criminals were punished outside the gates. Um, and there was protection inside the gates. Um, we uh, call ourselves the refuge because of this Old Testament uh, concept. I, would, I guess it's a New Testament concept too, but the cities of refuge where people who were um, guilty could run. And if you could get inside the gates of the city of refuge, then those who were pursuing you to exact justice had to wait outside the gates. You could find safety and mercy inside the gates. Um, inside the gates, the will, the power, and the authority of the king is concentrated. I mean, think about it. If you all the uh, the old movies with, I think about the old movies with like, there's a moat around the the castle, and there's the drawbridge, and the guy's running, and he and the drawbridge is going up, and he jumps, and he gets inside as the bridge is going up, and boom, the drawbridge or the gate is closed, and it's like, whew, I'm safe inside the gate, because the only thing that can happen inside this gate is what the king wants to happen. The king is in charge in here. The king has authority here. Sometimes when, when uh, maybe the nation is under attack, maybe outside the gates, not everything that happens is the will of the king. But boy, inside the gates, that's where he really has his authority. And there's another uh, set of gates referred to in Scripture. I don't know if you're, you remember this Scripture. When, um, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. And then Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're not that smart. You didn't come up with that. The Holy Spirit told you that. <laughs> and, and then he says this, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, what rock? Not Peter. Some churches believe the rock is Peter. The, Peter is not the rock. It's the rock of the revelation of Jesus as Christ. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. Now, a lot of people read that scripture, and it's a defensive thing, right? We talk about the gates of hell not prevailing, and we think about, oh, the enemy will attack the church, but the church is going to win. I have never in my life seen someone use a gate as an offensive weapon. <laughs> That is not what this scripture is about. This scripture is not about the church overcoming trials and tribulations and trouble. This is about the church being on offense, yeah. on. breaking down the gates of hell, and plundering hell. But uh, back to my original point about, about gates. I just, as I was reading this week and thinking about the gates, and I'm imagining the gates of the kingdom, and then I'm imagining the gates of hell, and I'm thinking to myself, what, what do you think it looks like inside the gates of hell? I mean, I can imagine inside the gates of the kingdom. I mean, hopefully I live inside there. I try, sure try to. Life, abundance, peace. The gates of hell. Darkness, death, despair, hopelessness, fear. Everything we um, fear of, uh, like a king or a dictator, ruling with an iron fist. You're a slave to the enemy. His will happens in his kingdom. 
But uh, here's some good news. Which king do you think has more power? King Jesus or the Prince of Darkness? I, I thought about that this week. Uh, he's King Jesus. The devil's just a prince. And, and, then, and then I love this one. One of them, the scripture says, he prowls around like a roaring lion. But, but Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So one is pretending to be a king. He's pretending like he's got authority. He's playing king. And then there's the real king. There's, there's one kingdom I want to live in. There's only one set of gates I want to be on the inside of. There's only one king for me. There's only one person I put my hope in, my trust in, my faith in. Only one person is going to turn this nation around. I don't hope in a donkey. I don't hope in an elephant. I hope in a lion. I'm following the lion. He's king. He's the hope for this nation. He's the hope for the world. I want to live inside his gates. And I thought about this. When I'm living inside the gates of his kingdom, because my hope is anchored in his kingdom, his authority, his crown, my hope is in him, my joy is not subject to this world. Because my hope is in the truth that he has all authority, that every knee will bow, that the gates of hell will not prevail, that in the end Jesus wins and we win. My hope is in his kingdom advancing until the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. My hope is in him and his rule and his reign. So my joy is not subject to what the economy of the world, the state of the world. I care about the world. I love people. But my hope isn't in the world. I'm not actually surprised when the world goes to hell in a handbasket. I had no hope in the world. I'm not surprised when wars break out, when people hate each other. I'm heartbroken. But my hope was never in us to lead ourselves out of this thing. It's only inside those gates. All the hope we have is inside those gates. We've got to get inside those gates. I just want to live in those gates. That's where life is. That's where peace is. That's where hope is. I was thinking, though, as I was imagining what, what it looked like inside the gates of hell. And I just, the, I, I just imagined this, like, wicked, evil king, right? And this grip he has on all the subjects in his kingdom inside those gates. How strong his grip must be. I don't know if you've ever um, combated darkness, demonic forces. We used to do some uh, prayer walks uh, as a young a youth group in Lewiston, uh, where I came from in Idaho, on like Friday nights, uh, teenagers they don't do this anymore. Teenagers don't even care about driving. 
I'm like, who are you? That's, I literally, I'm not even kidding. This is not a joke. I prayed, Jesus, please don't come back until I get my driver's license. I just want to drive. I couldn't wait to drive. I know kids are like 20 years old, and they're like, eh, I don't care. I'm like, who are you? But in Lewiston on Friday and Saturday nights, and some of you older folks probably did this when you were teenagers. They would drive the loop. They'd just drive the loop over and over again. You know, we're not doing that now because of... uh, Six dollars a gallon. That's a that's an expensive Friday night. So we we used to walk around and pray, and uh, on Fridays and Saturday nights, and there in certain parking lots were like certain groups of kids. There was like the the cowboy kind of kids, and then there was the jocks, and then there was and and uh, we came across one parking lot, and they were it was pure darkness, witchcraft. I mean, literally witches. And I can remember. I'm this young teenager learning about the things of the Spirit and feeling this intimidation, this power. I'm not, the enemy, it's, it's scary, this confrontation. And I, I, this, this person kind of stood up defiantly towards us and tried to, like, scare us. And my leader was amazing. I was just a kid, like, standing behind her. And she, like, didn't back down. And, of course, the enemy lost. But, but I remember thinking, I kind of learned a lesson that night. Like, there, there is power. There is dark power. And there is, we are in a battle. And, and just seeing the grip that the enemy had on this young woman's heart. Um, how strong is his grip? And yet, how much stronger is the grip of Jesus? Like, and, and the, the, the cool thing is, like, everything that's true, true <clears throat> behind the gates of hell is true in the gates of the kingdom in the, in the reverse. In the gates of hell, you're under the grip of the enemy, and it's all for his glory. In the gates of heaven, you're under the grip of the king, and it's all for his glory. But, but the thing about his glory is it leads to life and joy and peace and happiness. And over here, he just steals, kills, and destroys. But the grip of Jesus, I, I, I can, uh, there have been times we've prayed for deliverance for people. I'm always blown away when we're praying for deliverance how, while the enemy does have a grip on people, how it's no contest. It's no contest. The name of Jesus. I mean, demons flee. The grip of the King Jesus is so much stronger. The protection of our King, uh, his, his, his life, his light, his joy, his abundance. And nothing happens inside those gates outside his will. He's in control. I want to live inside the gates. I want to live under the authority of King Jesus. I love uh, the message translation. Uh, this verse uh, about entering the gates. I love it. It says, enter with the password, thank you. Enter with the password, thank you. I just, I love that. Um, Gratitude unlocks the gates. Repentance is me recognizing Oh, man, I found myself outside the gates. And going, I could turn around and get back inside those gates. And so repentance is me coming back to the gate, unlocking that gate, 
and getting inside. I believe gratitude can be, is an act of repentance. It's a prophetic realignment of my priorities, of my will, of, of how I see the world. When I choose gratitude, I'm saying, eyeballs, we're going we're gonna to focus on the goodness of God. Mind, we're going to meditate on all the good things he's done. Mouth, we're going to speak life and not death. And I'm, I'm realigning my whole being in, back into the kingdom. And I'm unlocking the gate and getting back in. Gratitude is the most practical way to repent. It's a beautiful, easy, practical way to repent. Gratitude positions me to receive the king's protection, the king's provision, the king's justice, and the prophetic message of the king. See, gratitude sparks a prophetic message inside of my heart. Because what happens is, you know, the word testimony is rooted in the word do it again. When I'm feeding on what God has done, I'm reminded of how he's been so faithful to me. I'm reminded of, I can remember in college, one, one time in Bible college, like by the end of the day, I had to have a serious amount of money to pay for school. And uh, I wasn't like super worried about it, but I knew I had to have a significant amount of money. Uh, and, and I woke up in the morning and I prayed about it, didn't tell anybody. And I went into the church. We were hosting a conference at the school I went to. And uh, the lady behind me at the conference tapped me on the shoulder and she said, um, you know, the Lord told me to bring this with me today to the conference, and I think it's for you, and gave me a hundred bucks. And then, and I said, oh my goodness, this is amazing, thank you. And then, and then after the session, I'm walking out in the foyer, and one guy comes up to me and shakes my hand, and it's one of those Holy Spirit handshakes that we all love, and he had like 200 bucks in his hand when he shook my hand. Oh my goodness. And I, when I feed on stories like that, you know, when I'm like, oh, my goodness, how are we going to pay the rent? And then I remember, and I'm grateful, and I'm thankful. God, I remember when you did that for me. All of a sudden, this prophetic thing comes up at me. And I'm like, wait a minute. He did that. He can do this. Like, like it stirs the prophetic message of the king. It's all going to be okay. We win. He's taking care of us. Gratitude unlocks the gates of the kingdom. So I'm going to read out of this book, but first, I just have a pretty easy question for you. Do you think you can live the kingdom life outside the gates? Pretty easy question, right? No way. We can't live the kingdom life outside the gates. So if gratitude unlocks the gates, then gratitude is step one to kingdom life. It is the most basic principle of kingdom life. If you want to live inside the kingdom under the rule and reign of King Jesus, you've got to be grateful. So as, can we train our hearts to be grateful so we can live inside the gates of the king? Let me read. I'm going to read a significant chunk of this book. I'm sorry. This, this book, I'm not, I'm sorry, not sorry. This book is amazing. It's called Spirit and Sacrament by a man uh, by the name of Andrew Wilson. And the premise of the book is that, you know, there's some churches rich in history that have, like, a lot of uh, liturgy and, and history, and, and they, they really they, they, uh, value the sacraments and tradition. And there's beauty and value in that. 
And, and, and then there's us charismatic folks that tend to be kind of like living, flying on the, by the seat of our pants. And this book is all about, he calls it being a eucharismatic, blending the Eucharist with the charismatic life. And uh, which is kind of what we've been feeling in the church. So anyway, this book is so good. But I'm going to read, not going to lie, I'm probably going to read just about a chapter to you. So hopefully you like listening to someone read. This chapter is called A Theology of Gift. A Theology of Gift. In In an important sense, all Christian theology is charismatic. Every doctrine we have You know, charismatic just means grace gift, right? Uh, Every doctrine we have concerns a grace gift of some sort. Creation, life, sex, fall, promise, seed, covenant, Israel, redemption, law, land, temple, kingdom, hope, incarnation, cross, resurrection, spirit, gospel, church, sacraments, prayer, scriptures, Judgment, new creation, whatever theological topics we discuss and however we arrange them, we will find gift at the heart of all of them. Christianity is gracious from beginning to end. Existence itself is a gift. The creation story is full of gifts. Life is given to creatures. Earth is is given to humanity. Woman is given to man. Children are given to woman. Despite our preoccupation with the one tree that was not given to humanity, Genesis draws our attention to the multitudes that were. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. Genesis 1.29 raspberries, olives, lemons, rosemary, garlic, mangoes, cocoa. Then a few chapters later, the animals are thrown in as well. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Genesis 9.3. Honey, duck, uh, honey, duck eggs, cream, roast lamb. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Rainbow trout, filet mignon, everything. God gives humans dominion over all of creation. Mountain ranges and waterfalls, deserts and jungles, leopards, glaciers, sequoias, oranges, peacocks. He gives rain. He gives light. He gives fragrances and flavors, even though as a spiritual being himself, he has neither a nose nor a tongue. He gives colors. He covers the earth with food-giving plants or life-giving water. And in the places where he doesn't, the very rocks cry out. He creates orgasms and oxygen. None of these things are needed by God or deserved by his creatures, but he gives them anyway. Creation is charismatic. The serpent, by contrast, has nothing to give, so he focuses his attack on undermining God's gifts, first by insinuating they haven't really been given at all. Did he really say you can't eat anything? And then by suggesting that God's motives are sinister. He's just worried you'll become godlike, you see. It's hard to believe that anyone on safari in the Serengeti would complain that there were no sandflies. Or at a dinner at a Michelin star restaurant would lament the lack of spam fritters on the menu. 
But their eyes move from the abundance all around them to the one thing God hasn't given. They desire it, they eat, they die. The fall is what happens when we think God's gifts aren't good enough. The gifts keep on coming anyway. He gives the promise that one day the seed, the snake crusher, will come. He gives clothes. He gives Eve, sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. He gives the world an ark, a covenant, and a rainbow. He gives Abraham a name, a seed, a blessing, and a land. And the name is great. The seed is everlasting. The blessing is for every nation. And the land flows with milk and honey. He gives children to barren women and inheritance to undeserving men. He gives reminders of his promises continually through angelic visitors and wrestling matches, rams and lambs in bushes and up ladders, in clouds and fire. He gives freedom from slavery, manna from heaven, water from rock, and forgiveness from sin. He gives prophets and priests, tabernacle and Torah, exodus and empire. It's worth noting a surprising but often neglected fact at this point. These gifts are not ambiguous. God's gifts are unequivocally good. Creation, according to Genesis 1, is good, 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 very good. The garden is a paradise. Work is good. Sex is good. Marriage is good. Despite Adam's Uh, efforts to spin the fall as if it was somehow a problem with the gifts or even the giver, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. It patently wasn't. There are no Greek-style landmines in the Garden of Grace. The rainbow guarantees goodness forever. The covenant with Abraham concerns the blessing of the entire world, and to read the rest of the Old Testament is to follow that blessing down the generations with all its surprising twists and turns, like watching a cups and balls routine, only stranger and invariably good. The law is good, reviving the soul. The land is good, with grape clusters the size of wheelie bins. The temple is good, the joy of the whole earth. There are no Trojan horses, beautiful evils, or jars of death here. No secret miseries hidden in the small print. When God gives, it is for the blessing of everybody. Never is this truer than it is of Jesus. What can be given that compares with God himself? The incarnation is the most extravagant gift in all of history or literature. And the nativity stories draw out this point in a variety of ways from the subtle Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. To the suggestive, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. To the blatant, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The original Christmas present, wrapped in muslins and rags rather than in decorative paper, does not merely come to give. He is himself a gift. The gift, the most outlandish demonstration of the love that God could possibly offer. Everything he gives to the crowds who follow him. Good news, sight, speech, ritual cleanliness, hearing, bread, teaching, peace, social inclusion, forgiveness, table fellowship. Life is in some way a precursor to his gift of himself, of his own accord, as a ransom for many. His parables strikingly reinforce the picture of God as an irrepressible giver, even when they're not mainly about God. 
Once there was a farmer who scattered seed so liberally that most of it didn't take root. Once there was a king who gave remittance for a debt of 10,000 talents. Once there was a vineyard owner who gave people far more than their work was worth. Once there was a father who gave away half of his estate to his rebellious son and then gave him a feast when he came crawling back, having wasted it all. Once there was a nobleman who gave three months wages to all his employees and then went on a foreign trip. Once there was a landowner who gave his vineyard over to tenants. Once there was a king who gave wedding invitations to every undesirable in the country. In fact, it is hard to think of a parable in which, God, which a God figure featured and he is not characterized by giving away far more than he should. There's also a certain extravagance verging on wastefulness to his miracles. How many weddings have you been to where they need 150 gallons of wine? Why can't a person who can miraculously multiply bread and fish also count? so as not to end up over-catering by 12 baskets. <laughs> if you could heal someone with a word, why would you wait until they had been dead for three days before raising them? Putrid grave clothes and all in front of the whole village. What is the point of walking on water rather than swimming or calming a storm rather than looking at the clouds and muttering something about it being better to go sailing tomorrow? Why does a death need to be accompanied not just by earthquakes, dark skies, and torn curtains, but also by the coming to life of dozens of random people? Who produces 153 fish out of nowhere to the point that the boat carrying them nearly sinks? Who does it twice? Yet these miracles, generous and gracious as they are, are so eclipsed by the gift of Christ himself, that many of us fail to notice them as gifts at all. Despite the last few pages of examples, there's only one thing in Paul's mind when he writes, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And anyone with even a passing knowledge of the Christian tradition knows exactly what it is. Clearly, the apostles regard everything as being given by God. But it is Jesus crucified and risen who is the focus of such statements as the grace of God has appeared. Or, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Or, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Every breath, step, meal, or vista we have is a gift. What do you have that you did not receive? but they recede into insignificance before the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift himself. Like stars fading before the risen sun. Then comes the spirit. Jesus spoke about this gift more than any other, bursting with anticipation, just a little while and I will come to you. I'll ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. It is to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't, the helper won't come. I give you my peace. He will lead you into truth. You will receive power. You will witness to me all over the world. Promise, presence, power, proclamation, peace, prophecy, perseverance, Pentecost. From the moment the Spirit is poured out, 
accompanied by stormy winds and fiery tongues, he is described as a gift and one on whom Christian experience centers, a gift for all who repent and get baptized, a gift money cannot purchase, a gift now poured out on the Gentiles, given to guarantee our eternal inheritance, given to shed abroad the love of God into our hearts, given to make us know, make us feel that we are children of God. The gifts of the Spirit may be controversial, but the gift of the Spirit is as unifying a doctrine as there is. And the Spirit is the gift who keeps on giving. Throughout the story of the church, he gives us spiritual gifts and spiritual guardians, missionaries and schoolmen, scriptures and sacraments. He gives us one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Sometimes he gives his gifts look like successes, the conversion of the Roman Empire or the abolition of slavery. Sometimes they look like failures, retreat into the desert, or the fragmentation of Europe along religious lines. Sometimes they look spectacular as revivals or reformations sweep the country. Often they look incredibly ordinary as peasant farmers and mothers of eight children shuffle into small stone buildings, receive the word, receive bread and wine, and shuffle out again. On occasion, you wonder whether his gifts have been withdrawn altogether as leaders are burned or beheaded and the faithful gather secretly in woodsheds and cellars. But the Spirit keeps giving the peace and the truth and stickability we were promised back in the upper room. And for all this, the church is never spent. There, uh, Hopkins said, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things because the Holy Ghost over the bent church broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Finally, the Christian story ends with a new beginning, one that comprises gifts of such excellence and magnitude that even Paul is wary of speculating quite what they will be like. No mind can conceive of it, he says. What you sow doesn't come to life until it dies. Perishable people can't fathom imperishable life. It will be worth it, though. If God didn't spare his own son, then he's obviously going to give us all things, isn't he? John is less cautious. It will be like giving the tree of life all over again, being given a white stone with a name that nobody knows, being given authority over the nations, being given white robes, a throne, a crown, an invitation to a wedding feast, a new creation, a river of life, fruit trees, a glorious jewel-festooned city. May the charis of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Christian theology is a theology of gift.